was the um, the great musical film Moulin Rouge had the great line, the greatest thing is to to love another and be loved in return. The greatest thing is to love another and to be loved in return. And you might cringe at that, but actually, doesn't that kind of explain why if you log onto the World Wide Web, there are thousands, millions of people you know, just longing for love, longing to, to be loved and to, to love another. And you know, it's what keeps our, our pop industry going, doesn't it? All these songs about love. The Beatles sang back in the 1960s, all you, all you need is love. And, and they're kind of right in a way, aren't they? You know, if we really did love one another, the world would go around a heck of a lot more smoothly, wouldn't it? If men and women really did love each other genuinely, wouldn't that solve like, the conflicts in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and Israel and Palestine? Or was another great pop song that says, Love, love changes everything. Or the great power ballads, the, the power of love, or the Black Eyed Peas saying, where is the love? Love, love, love. And if you ask a big question like, what is, what is the goal of life? I mean, very quickly, if you've lived on this earth, you soon realise that, you know, possessions, they don't really satisfy, and, and property doesn't satisfy, and work doesn't satisfy, and power doesn't satisfy, but love, to love another and to be loved in return, that satisfies. You know, it's not just the, the, the popular poets or the, the musical lyricists who work that one out. Open up your Bibles and from page one you find that. You know, we are made by God, made in his image, male and female. We're made to know God, to be loved by God and to love each other. You know, love without expecting anything in return. Love without resentment, love without fear, love without prejudice, love without duty. Just love freely, extravagantly, sacrificially. And that's really our theme of this parable tonight, love. And I want to look at the four headings, the command to love, the failure to love, the challenge to love, and, and the greatest love of all. So firstly, if you're taking notes, you've got a, a, a handout on your bulletin. The command to love. The command to love. There's an expert in the law. That is somebody who, who's an Old Testament scholar. He knew his Bible really well. This is a kind, kind of a, a a Bible college student and he's asking the questions about life he knows God exists he knows he's accountable to God but the assumption is he must do something to inherit eternal life eternal life is going to be earned perhaps a kind of reward so he comes to Jesus in verse 25 and look what he asks teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life Jesus how can I be sure I'm saved tell me in your opinion Jesus what do I have to do I'm sure that the question wasn't really a sincere one. I mean, Luke tells us it in the motives in verse 25. He came to, look at it, he came to, to test Jesus. Maybe to expose his, his theological incompetence. He's a kind of person, you know, who thinks they're, he thinks they're really smart. And they come to the, the theologian and say, oh, you know, who, who, was, um, who was Cain's wife? They don't really want to know, but they're just out to try and trick the speaker. That's, that's the kind of guy this is. He's trying to trap Jesus, but Jesus refuses to be drawn into this speculation. He's the master of, of turning the question back onto the interrogator. And he says, verse 26, oh, what's written in the law? Haven't you read it? You know, what would you say? How, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's what um, 
what Whitney Houston says. She says, everybody's searching for a hero. People need someone to look up to. I've never found anyone who will fulfill my needs. a lonely place to be. So I've learned to depend on, on me. I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadows. If I fail, if I succeed, at least I'll, I'll live as I believe. No matter what they take from me, they can't take away my dignity because, because the greatest love of all is happening to me. I found the greatest love of all inside of me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. Me. Learning to love me. All about me, 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 me. Uh, you know, isn't that what we teach our kids from an early age? Life's about learning to love yourself. And friends, it's egocentric, it's narcissistic. Just love yourself. But the lawyer is spot on. Verse 27, he's spot on. He quotes Deuteronomy 6 and he quotes Leviticus 19. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. He's saying, Life's about loving God, the, 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 the vertical love, and loving your neighbour, the horizontal love. The law of love, if you want, you know, the first four commandments, no other gods but me, is really about loving God above everything else. And the last six commandments, you know, honour your father and mothers, don't steal, don't murder, about loving your neighbour as yourself. That's what life's about. Listen to how Paul put it in Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to, to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbour as yourself. See, I'm no expert on relationships, but you know, I, I do some, some marriage counselling. And you can spot the couples who have taken that seriously and they really do love each other. They're not the sort of couples who sit in my office and they say, look, I'm willing to, to love you in this area, but not in this area. I'm willing to compartmentalise our marriage life, so I want my independence, but I don't want to, live to, to love you wholeheartedly. I just love you with this bit and this bit, but not this bit. And so when, when, when Jesus says, love God wholeheartedly, he's saying, every air of your life is committed to loving God. And Jesus' answer isn't revolutionary. It's written on every page of Scripture. Life's about loving God and loving each other. And, you know, that, that horizontal love the, the, is kind of a visible proof of a vertical love. Because it's easy to say, I, I love God. It's much harder to show it by loving each other. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 says this, We know we've passed from death to life. How do you know it? How do you know you pass from death to life? Because you do good things? No. Because you have faith in Christ? No. You pass from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. And that truth is very simple. We're designed to love God and to love everybody else. Everyone made in the image of God. So if I was to ask you, who are the people going to heaven? Who are the people going to heaven? Who are the people who are truly saved? They're people who, who love God wholeheartedly and they love their neighbour. It sounds simple, but the big question on our lips is, what does it mean to love God, and what does it mean to love our neighbour? Jesus answers the question, what it means to love God, in the, the bit after this parable about Mary and Martha. It's about listening to Jesus, not about doing so, it's about listening to Jesus. But let's focus on what it means to love your neighbour. And if this, is, if this parable is true, it's really a sharp 
wake-up call to those of us who call ourselves Christians. Because I reckon, I reckon most of us here in this church are not dissimilar to the lawyer. He, he didn't want to look stupid in front of Jesus. He tried to justify himself. Verse uh, 29. And he's really asking the question, who is my neighbour? Tell me, Jesus, who exactly am I called to love? I reckon this guy here is a bit like a, a mirror to most churches, to most Christians, because we divide the world into two groups, sort of my people and, and not my people. Us and them. And you can, I imagine that this guy has got, you know, he's got his... He's got his contact list in his Outlook. And he's got his Christmas card list. And he's got his mates. He's got people that he cares for. He's got guys at church or the synagogue. And even the, the guys he finds hard to talk to. But he tries his best. But he puts limits on friendships based on, on race or, or class or, or social grounds. And Jesus tells a story. And he really challenges what it means to love. What it really means to love. To love your neighbour as yourself. This story goes like this. There's a, a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about 17 miles long. That's about a distance from, from Sydney to, to Narrabeen. And, and it's a rocky road and it's lined with caves and there'd be good hideouts for robbers and bandits. It's a bit like walking through the inner city late at night. Uh, and a man walks along this road and he's robbed, he's beaten, he's stripped naked and he's left to die. And then Jesus tells us in verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. It's a lonely road and you're thinking, what a stroke of luck. This poor wounded man, and along comes a priest. Here's a man who's been in Jerusalem at the temple, serving, and he's coming home. You know, the kind, righteous, religious leader. And the narrative is brilliant. The priest sees the man, verse 31, he saw him, and what does he do? He passed by on the other side. He gets as far away as possible. He completely ignores him. And then comes along a Levite, verse 32. Levite is someone who, who served in the temple, you know, the regular church by the bridge, always in church, always doing things for God. And you're thinking, surely this man has compassion. Verse 32. The Levite came to the place where he saw him and he passed by on the other side. And then comes the Samaritan. You know, I think we lose a shock of this parable because we hear the word Samaritan and we think, you know, good people. People who sit at the end of telephone lines waiting for someone to call. Or the people who send gifts overseas to the poor and needy. But the Samaritans were, were actually the traitors and the bad, bad guys and the terrorists, you know. When, 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 uh, when Israel was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. And it was the Samaritans who, who intermarried. And it was the Samaritans who, who worshipped foreign gods and worshipped not in Jerusalem but in, at Mount Gerizim. And they were hostile and they were hated. It's a bit like saying, you know, Al-Qaeda came along the road. Or Osama bin Laden came along the road. And Luke emphasises that shock by, by placing the word Samaritan right at the front of verse 33. He says, but Samaritan, he travelled... He says the hero is this bad guy. He's the most offensive hero you could think about. And the priest, he, he's cold, he's calculating. The Samaritan, he's full of compassion. And the priest, he risks nothing. The Samaritan, he, he gives everything. Look what the Samaritan does. Verse 34. He went to him, he comes up to the man, he binds his wounds, he, he pours on oil and wine to comfort him, he lays him onto his donkey, he took him to an inn, he takes care of him. 
Verse 35, he took out two silver coins. That, that's two days' wages. It's about enough for three and a half weeks of hospital care. He cares for the man, and that's a great challenge. And so Jesus turns to the law in verse 36 and says what? Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man? And she notices that, that the, the lawyer, the expert, can't bring himself to say the word Samaritan. That word kind of sticks in his throat. And he replies, oh, the one who, who showed mercy. And did you notice that you know, the, the expert asks, who is my neighbour? Who is my neighbour? In the hope that you know, some people might not be neighbours. There might be non-neighbours that you don't have to love. There might be people that you don't really have to love. And Jesus says, not who is my neighbour, but he says, verse 37, go and be a neighbour. Go and be a neighbour to whoever's in need. And this parable challenges about three things. A failure to love. The failure to love people as we love ourselves. Why do you think the priests and the Levites passed by? Perhaps, you know, it was fear of being jumped on. You know, they put their personal security first. You can imagine the priest talking to his friends and saying, look, I saw him, but it had been foolish to stop. There might have been other bandits there ready to, ready to rob me. I mean, I'm a priest and other people depend on me. You know, or perhaps they thought they were being biblical. You know, don't go near a, a dead person, otherwise you'll be unclean. Perhaps it was ethnic reasons. You know, they thought, he's not one of mine, he doesn't belong to my tribe. But Jesus is very clever. You see, the man isn't wearing any clothes, is he? He's stripped naked. So you can't tell what clan he's from. And he doesn't speak, so there's no accent. So there's no way of telling where this guy is from. Perhaps, it, you know, it's purely selfish, you know. Oh, I'm tired after a long day at the temple and I've just got to get home and I, I can't be bothered to help this dying man. Whatever the reason, Jesus is exposing a complete failure to love. This is what not to do. These people did not love their neighbours as themselves. And I was thinking, you know, why do we fail to love our neighbours as ourselves? I've got four reasons why we fail to love our neighbours ourselves. There's the the self-justifying, you know, I don't do any harm. The self-justifying, I don't do anyone any harm. See, Jesus says, love and do good, and we say, well, actually, I don't do any wrong. We take the positive command and we turn it into the negative, because that's easy to handle, isn't it? It's to comfort ourselves that we haven't stolen, we haven't murdered, we haven't slandered, we haven't actually hurt anybody. We haven't done the wrong thing, so surely we've loved our neighbour. And so when we see someone on the street who is in desperate need, we, we rationalise that decision to walk on by. We say, well, I, I didn't put him there. Can you imagine the Levites sort of saying, look, it wasn't me who beat him up. I'm not responsible. I've just been to church. I help people. I don't harm anybody. Or even worse, they, they say, oh, isn't it shocking? Isn't it shocking that those robbers, implication being, I'd never do that. Is that us? You know, we justify our failure to love and our failure to help by saying the positive, I, I don't do any harm. Uh, and we sit here and we, we, we say the confession, but we don't think about the sins of omission and neglect and the way we fail to love. There are lots of people come across our path each day. Some we know, some we don't know. People in deep financial needs, emotional needs, needing just a friend. And we justify our decision not to love them by saying, oh, I don't do any wrong. 
The second reason I think is what I call self-righteousness. You know, I look after other people. And so we come up with a list of the people that we do help. Uh, and we make excuses like, you know, I, I'm just too busy. You know, I, I've been to James Mills Retirement Village this week and I've and then I've I've been to Greenaway and I subscribe to my family relief fund and I've sponsored my child in Africa and we sit there and we, we're cold and we're calculating, I've done this and I've done this. And I was thinking, you know, it's actually really hard today because we've institutionalised the hungry and we've institutionalised the homeless and we've institutionalised the poor and the oppressed and they've become this kind of international charity and so we say I've loved my neighbour when we've just given our credit card details and we've we subscribed to a society and we think that we've, lo- we've loved it's rubbish you know, loving your neighbour isn't about the, the statistic, it's about the individual people, the ones or twos who, who come across your path in this church and outside the church. And they might not be of your social background, and they might not be of your, your class, or they might be unusual, they might be difficult, they might be time consuming, but you know, to pass on by is a failure to love, no matter how many other people we've cared for. Or how about the, the evangelistic excuse? You know, it's all about sharing the gospel. I don't want to lose sight of my, my priority in evangelism, so I'm not going to help a person in need. Or I'll only help someone in need if it gives me a chance to explain the gospel. Do you see that anywhere in the Bible? I don't mishear me. People's greatest need is the gospel of Christ. People must hear about Christ. And every time we help someone in need, we must be praying that we get a chance to explain the gospel. But I mean, lack of gospel opportunity isn't an excuse not to love sacrificially and practically. Or how about the, um, the, the withdrawal excuse, you know? I just don't want to get involved. Here's some newspaper articles. Real articles from real newspapers. Here's the first one. Motorists slow down to watch as a man raped a three-year-old girl in broad daylight next to a busy road but not one person stopped to help her. A woman in her late 20s was attacked on her way home. As she screamed for help, she noticed people twitching their curtains, witnessing the crime. Not one bothered to phone the police. And when they were asked later why they'd done nothing, the the answer was unanimous. We didn't want to get involved. Isn't that kind of our individualistic, materialistic world that we live in? I live my life, you live your life, but I don't want to get involved in other people's problems. See, it's easy to say as Christians, I love my neighbour. It's much harder to go and do. And Jesus says, verse 37, go and do likewise. Go and love without limit. Stop the self-justifying, stop the self-righteousness, stop the excuses, start loving people extravagantly, all people, no matter who they are, where they come from, what they need. Jesus doesn't just focus on the who, but the how. He says, do it. So here's the challenge, the challenge to love. I reckon the Samaritan is the example. You know, his love is a, a selfless love. He didn't think of himself or his needs. His love is a, a compassionate love. He, he binds the wounds, he, he eases the pain, he meets the physical need. His love is a, a costly love, financially costly, two days' wages. But he joyfully, graciously, willingly gave. And his love is, a, is an indiscriminate love. That's the beauty of this parable. The injured man had no clothes, no accent to give away his class or his race. 
But the Samaritan said, it's just another human being made in the image of God and loved by God and therefore I will love him. It's not the, um, what's the least I can do to fulfill my duty. But he says, how precious is this one individual? That's the real love. One-on-one, costly, selfless, indiscriminate. Let me be very honest tonight. This is my fear for church by the bridge. I've heard it said, and I think I agree with it, you know, we're the the beautiful church, and people want to be seen at church by the bridge. But what happens when someone walks through that door who doesn't quite fit in? You know, the person from Greenway, or the person who is intellectually challenged, or the uneducated, or the poor, or the needy, or the, the old and the frail or the person who smells, or the person who dribbles, or the person who is depressed, or the person who's lonely, or the person where the world passes them by. And my fear is this, that yes, we're superficially welcoming. You know, we give them a nod, we give them a name tag, and we offer them a quick cup of coffee. But all the time, we're deep down, we're thinking, oh, someone else can care for them. And it doesn't need to be the people in real need. Someone comes in who doesn't quite fit into your little box of friends you know, they aren't trendy enough or sporty enough and they're not in our clique and so we rule them out as our neighbours and we're called in this parable to love extravagantly to love indiscriminately and selfishly selflessly and costly as to love God means that we show mercy to our neighbour, anyone and everyone irrespective of who they are what colour their skin is, what job they have or where they live now can you imagine the impact that would have on Kirribilli if we at Church by the Bridge loved like that? If we were known for the church that really did love our neighbours as ourselves? I mean think back to the, the 19th century Christian church. It was known for the work it did in the slums and the offering relief to the poor and people like William Wilberforce who served the oppressed. It's known for its practical obedience. I'm not saying we don't preach the gospel but we're called to love each other. And I'm just fearful that today our the secular organisations they put us to shame, and the church is just known for for theological arguings and debates and narrow-mindedness. And that's a challenge to love, costly love, extravagant love, and indiscriminate love. As I close, let me say Jesus isn't really telling the story because he believed that it would change the world. He doesn't want people to think they can earn their ticket to heaven by by loving each other. So our fourth point tonight is the greatest love of all. The greatest love of all. You see, down the centuries, people have have allegorised this parable. This is the most extraordinary one I heard. The, The wounded man is Adam. The thieves are the devil. The priest and the Levites are the Old Testament that passed on by and they couldn't help. And so the Good Samaritan is Jesus and the inn is the church and the two coins are their baptism and communion and the innkeeper is the Pope. That's pretty good, isn't it? But, of course we can't allegorise, but why is Jesus really telling the law this parable? Think about it. The lawyer says, I must love God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. I must love my neighbour. And Jesus says, this is what it really means to love. And isn't it like a a sort of hammer blow to this lawyer's pride? And he's saying, look, you know the commands, but you can't really keep them. 
Can you really love God wholeheartedly? Can you really love your neighbour like that? He's saying, stop rationalising, stop asking what must I do to inherit eternal life? You can't do anything. See, this parable shatters pride, it shatters our, think, our thinking that we really can love God like that. And my guess is that, that we're all sitting here and either we're feeling angry or we're feeling guilty. You know, we're feeling angry because you think I've manipulated you and exposing how self-centred we really are. Or you're feeling guilty because you know you haven't kept God's command to love him and to love each other like that. And we're sitting here and we're shattered and we're broken and that's the whole point of the parable. You're supposed to think, I can't do anything to inherit eternal life. You see, there was another man who also travelled down the Jericho Road, except this time he was travelling to Jerusalem, not to Jericho. And he fell into the hands of religious people and Roman people and they stripped him and they wounded him and they left him not half dead at the side of the road but half dead on a cross. And people passed by and they mocked him and they spat on him and they murdered him. And Jesus turned this parable of the Good Samaritan into, into fact. And he said, yes, I am the wounded man and I'm also the Good Samaritan. Because as I hang on the cross I cry, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, friends, that is the greatest love of all, isn't it? It's not found inside of me, it's found at the cross of Calvary. One hymn writer put it like this, Why did they nail him to the cross when, when his love would have held him there? That is the greatest love of all. Jesus Christ dying on the cross, once and for all, the perfect sacrifice, once and for all, offering eternal life, not to those who do, who go and do likewise, but eternal life to those who believe. Not based on work, but based on grace. He's saying, friends, you don't love God with your whole heart and you don't love your neighbour yourself and you can't love like that. And actually deep down you don't want to love like that because you're selfish. But look at me and come to me and I'll give you rest. And the point of this parable is that it's all about grace. But the sign that you've really, really grasped grace, the sign that you really are a true disciple is if you come to Jesus and you've gone and done likewise. He doesn't say go and talk about loving neighbours. He doesn't say go and read a book about it. He says go and do. Prove that the Spirit is at work in you by the way that you love each other. That's what John chapter 13 says. A new command I give to you, love one another. As I've loved you, you must love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. You see, we have a great gospel it's a gospel that offers us eternal life but the proof that you really have got the spirit in you the proof that you really are saved is what? is that you're striving to love God and you're striving to love your neighbours yourself indiscriminately extravagantly costly and selflessly and that would transform this church let's pray